welcome to the Hockey Podcast. I am your host, Isabel Taylor, and this month I have the pleasure of introducing Patrice Caldwell, editor of A Phoenix First Must Burn, in conversation with Arvin Armadi about his newest novel, How It All Blew Up, which is about one boy's silly, sexy romp through Italy, but also about the power of finding yourself finding your people, and living your truth. Our audiobook will be The Fantastic Stepsister by Jennifer Donnelly, whose newest novel, Poisoned, will be out in October. Arvin Armadi is the author of two previous critically acclaimed novels, Down and Across and Girl Gone Viral. When he's not reading or writing books, he can be found watching late-night talk show interviews and editing Wikipedia pages. How It All Blew Up is based on the author's life-changing trip to Italy, where he accepted and celebrated being both Iranian and gay. I'm so excited to also be introducing Patrice Caldwell, the editor of A Phoenix First Must Burn, a collection of 16 tales by best-selling and award-winning authors that explore the black female experience through fantasy, science fiction and magic, who will now be talking to Arvin about his inspiration. I'm Patrice Caldwell. I am the editor of A Phoenix First Must Burn, an anthology of black girl magic stories. And I'm here with my friend Arvin Amadi, who is the author of three books, but most recently, How It All Blew Up. So How It All Blew Up comes out. Arvin, when does it come out? September 22nd? It comes out September 22nd in both the U.S. and the U.K. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And so you can get this book wherever books are sold. Love that line. And, <laughs> and so we're here to talk about his debut. So How It All Blew Up is about Amira. So Amir is gay, Iranian, Muslim, and he gets blackmailed by this really horrible classmate. And yeah. so, you know, Amir does what any of us would do when you're closeted and you're like just afraid of like coming out to your family and then not being accepted. He runs away to Rome because that's what any of us That's the natural, yeah, yeah. That's I think natural, that's you know, when I was closeted and afraid of coming out, I like told, I mean, I went away to college. So it was like in Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the thing. I think the inclination is to run away and in fiction why not take it a step further and have them run away to Rome because for so many of us it's like yes. run away to summer camp run away to New York run away to college and here through kind of like a funny series of events ends up in Rome um, and that's kind of like where the story really happens it's like coming of age, coming out summer where he meets other queer people in Italy and learns to yeah. not just accept himself but embrace these parts of who he is and like all of those parts you know um, but of course, then like the book opens in an airport interrogation room at the end um, because his family finds him there. They get into an argument on the airplane and now they're all in separate rooms telling their side of the story. So that's really, I mean, that's like, yeah, that's the 20 second pitch, which is like blackmail, runaway, summer in Italy, but then they're all in separate interrogation rooms telling their side of the story. I will never forget that first line. It's like, let me just get one thing straight. I'm not, I'm not a character. I'm gay. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Perfect first line. Because I think what's so interesting about this book and so cool is, like, first you have the structure. So, like Arvin was saying, the structure is that you have, like, after the summer happened, the summer away that Amir had, like, him and his family, they all get put in these separate interrogation rooms by TSA because of a thing. And then you hear each of their sides of the story. And, I mean, my favorite POV is his sister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, like, she's so, she's just such a great, I'm like, ah, like, yeah. You know, well, because she, she feels kind of invincible, I think. Yes. I mean, on, yeah, it's kind of like difference between the parents who take the situation really serious. The dad especially has been there before. He's seen some stuff. Um, and the mom, just in general, um, is quite guarded. You know, like that is her like natural personality, um, especially around authority figures. 
And with Samir, I mean, he just had such a whiplash of a summer, especially the last 24 hours of his family finding him in Italy, um, yeah. that his tone shifts. But with Soraya, she is just herself out the gate. You know? No, I mean, she, she's just, and I and I love that. So and that's and that's from the very beginning. I mean, like in the yes. year's opening chapter, he's like, you know, when we were taken to this the waiting area, Soraya pulled out her phone and tried to record and be like, you know, a Muslim <laughs> family is being held against their will. And the mom, of course, is like, pipe down, put that away, because she's like, but no, I mean, she's very at first very like social justice and indignant about this. Yeah. Like, how could they? We yes, we had a fight on the airplane, but like. Why really did you pull us aside and put right, us in Right, 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 right. Because like many families have she's like, the airplane, but it's like yeah. they like, oh, you, oh, you're a brown family. And so, and that's the thing. She's the first one. She's the first one to be like, this isn't right, you know? Because Amir is just like he's not even thinking straight in the heat of the moment and in kind of like what prompted that argument on the airplane. Um, and the parents, of course, the parents just want to make this go away. And so it yeah. takes them longer to kind of come around to the crappiness of the situation and maybe the biases that got them in it. Like even, yeah. and that's one of the things that I love and I think like I've noticed other readers reacting to is like the mom's development, the development in her mm-hmm. monologue mm-hmm. is that, you know, eventually because she is all about keeping the peace and not ruffling feathers. Yeah. But, you know, eventually it comes to a point where like, you know, she just realizes like sometimes you just have to speak your mind. You know? Yes. No, you do. And like that's, and also I think that that's what's so powerful about this is that, his parents get to a point where they finally speak their mind in this interrogation room after they right. were taking, they went to go rescue Amir and from like rescue Amir. They went to go find Amir <laughs> where he was in yeah. Rome and they were going away too. Because basically, you know, they're arguing on the plane and then people are like, oh, you know, obviously Brown family arguing. They yeah. just went into this interrogation room. Yeah. So people, some, so some, some folks felt uncomfortable on the plane. Yeah, exactly. Which is like terrible, right? And I think it's so great that like they're, they're coming to like, oh, we are getting to the point where we're learning how to speak out. Also mirrors, because the story flips back and forth. Exactly. A mirror story. It mirrors, it mirrors a mirror's journey. Yes, learning Because he learns to speak out in Rome. Exactly. I mean, unfortunately, yes. that's a little bit of what causes the incident on the airplane. Um, but, I mean, that's just because he decided in Rome around all these people that he saw himself in that he didn't want to be silent anymore. He didn't want to be silent about any of the parts of who he was. Now, what, so what I love about this is that, you know, knowing you, is that I love that this, so much of this is based inspired by <laughs> your own life. You know, I remember, so, yeah. you know, this is sort of thing, like, Arvin had a fantastic <laughs> summer one time in Rome where yeah. Arvin, like, you know, I think it was amazing because I think, you know, when I first met you, it was definitely, like, obviously you're gay, you know. It's like, but, yeah. I mean, like, I knew that, but I think also, like, you weren't as comfortable. I was in a different place. Gay, yeah. Muslim. Yeah, and I think that's something, that, but honestly, like, you know, I think we've all been there. Like, I think there was a time in my life five years prior to me and you where I wasn't as comfortable with being black and queer, right? So, that, so yeah. I think I, and I think that's something that so many people, so many marginalized people go through, the idea of like, oh, I'm from this background that doesn't have yeah. like the best perception or whatever it is, you know, about. No. So it's like, now I'm going to come out to my family that I remember being like, my family could kick me the fuck out. <laughs> right. And that's the thing. When you, when you come out, you don't come out into, you don't come out into all the intersections of that identity right away. I mean, that's the yeah, part does, that takes time, well, you know, and so. talk about choosing the idea that you kind of have to, you feel like you have to only present certain parts of yourself, yeah. right? And so this, this, this trip for you was about you meeting all these different people and learning, like, oh, they're presenting their school self. I can't do. So I'm curious how you decided, like, you went on this trip. You did this thing. How did that translate? How did you get to the point where you were like, oh, I'm going to write a book about it? And, and why that's, was it important to you to do that? 
Yeah, no. So, I mean, the trip, I mean, the trip was just as unexpected as the book. Um, I knew that I wanted to go. <laughs> um, I knew that I wanted to go somewhere to work on my next book. Um, I had written Down okay. and Across, partly in Scotland. I know, I know. Um, yeah, Down and Across is kind of like a, because I wasn't even planning to publish that originally. I just, after I graduated from college. Oh, I didn't know my, that. Yeah, no, I wanted, I mean, it was senior year of college, and I, uh, was really lost and confused about life. Like I had, uh, I had studied computer science and was supposed to go work in tech, but then I had all these um, questions and doubts about like whether I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. Um, and so I started to write a book about like an, a 16 year old boy who was just as confused and had just as many questions about his future and what he wanted to be and, and that was what he wanted to do. Definitely. And that was my debut. Yeah. So I mean, I, I took basically like a post college trip uh, to go write that for myself. Um, and then one thing led to another and eventually it got published. Um, and then Girls on Viral, I also wrote a large part of the first draft in Helsinki. Um, and that was another kind of like, I mean, that was a random trip in that it was just a friend who, uh, he and his girlfriend had just moved there. They had a spare bedroom and they made kind of a flippant joke like, oh, you should come like live in our guest bedroom and be our writer uh, and uh, resident. Which is great. Right, you're like, oh, okay, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I will take you up on that. Um, and I did. And, so, and you know, Girls on Viral was your second novel, right? That was my second novel. And at that point, I, I was writing full time. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, by the time I was thinking about my third novel, I was like, oh, let me go write this somewhere too. Because I was, <laughs> I was, look, I was 25 and single and didn't have a mortgage <laughs> or anything hanging over my head. Um, so, like, <laughs> you know, those adult things that tie you down to a place that basically, like, mean that you can't go out and, like, be adventurous and be spontaneous and all those things that, like, you don't want to grow up and look back on your 20s and think, like, I wish I'd done more or tried more or traveled more. So I've always been conscious of that. And, you know, I, I I picked Italy at the time because it was 2018, and honestly, I, I specifically remember calling by your name had just come out. Um, mm-hmm. Master of None Season 2 had just come out, which was, like, where I was used yes, Italy. Yes, like, oh, that beautiful opening. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, I used to go to Italy because Italy is where my <laughs> brown side and my gay side are meant to converge. Like, I basically saw it as, like, an aziz Elio mashup. Um, that is fantastic. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was it was just, like, a very surface-level decision. Um, and I'd never been, you know. Mm-hmm. So Or I'd gone, I'd gone once before, and actually that gave me, like, a really good impression. I'd gone for, like, uh, a week, and I always wanted to go back for longer. Um, so that's how that happened. But then, you know, I wasn't, I was really planning to go to Italy and just like kind of do the solo writer thing of going to cafes and writing in my journal, um, and cooking up this like multi-generational American dream story that I've been talking about for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's actually, there was a, there was a character in that book with your last name. I, I, <laughs> I, I like randomly remember that I, yeah, cause we were, I was working on that while we used to have these like group writing dates at, yes. uh, in the city. And so, yeah, there's definitely like a character named after. Well, I mean, you know, obviously you, you'll get back to that book one day. One day, one day. There'll be, there'll be, there'll be a hook called, well, one day. Oh, not this name is Hope. Um, but no, I mean, instead of, instead of that, I fell into this like group of friends, um, and just, uh, it happened really fast. It was like the first weekend, um, before I knew it, I was hanging out with this like group of like queer Italian American people in Rome, um, and going out with them and having dinners with them and also just learning about a lot of like queer history and culture and music through them. 
Um, and so it wasn't until the end of the summer where I'd had this amazing uh, summer experience and I felt like I'd kind of like come into my own queerness through it um, became more comfortable with like not just that identity but also my Ramya identity where I got stopped at the airport um, in Italy while I was traveling um, and a customs officer was asking me just a lot of really specific questions like what was I doing in Italy, where was I hanging out, where was I staying, what were the people, you know, what were their names, what did they do? Um, so I found you got like basically profiled. Yeah, yeah, and that and, and the thing is, I remember at first I thought she was just genuinely interested, and so mm-hmm. I started to kind of like talk casually in a storytelling sort of way about about these about these friends, yeah, and the experience yeah. I had. And then I very quickly realized, like, oh no, she's like, this is actually a you know kind of serious thing, and she's trying to mine information out of me, so I should really just like give her the facts. Um, I love that because that's literally what happened with me, right? That's whole yeah. like, no, yeah. I know. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so that's, it was after that where I, because I knew I wanted to at some point, like, I, I, it was just such a, like, transformative summer for me in ways that I didn't realize at the time. Because to me, I was just like, I met some people and I was hanging out with them. But I also found myself kind of, like, coming into these identities and, like, the intersection of them so much more. And I didn't know how I wanted to tell that story until that experience where I was like, oh, this actually, like, merges like, like that first line came to me that like I'm not a terrorist I'm gay line and kind of the idea that like I kind of I, I really got into with this customs officer like the fact that I was hanging out with gay people in Rome um, and I realized after the fact it was largely because you know I, I was trying to emphasize like oh I'm not a threat like you might think I am I'm actually quite westernized and like you know as if that somehow made me safe you know or like less threatened. Oh that's you so know? fascinating the idea that like you were like oh like I'm gay like that's what I can Yeah the like, counter like the stereotype of my Muslimness uh, with this other part of my identity um, which uh, I don't like and I didn't feel good about that. That's a really uncomfortable experience. <laughs> yeah and that's, sure. that's I mean that's a little bit the model minority thing right? That was right. like something yeah. that I wanted to explore more in a book. So that's where the format of the story came from. I love that. And I'm, I'm curious, and feel free to answer this however you want, because this might be a bit of a tough question. Were you ever concerned or worried about, you know, just people you know receiving this, maybe your family or just readers who've, like, followed your other books? Like, It's very much a you-know-what-I'm-going-to-do-this, yeah. um, because that's kind of the whole point, right? I, I mean, like, I think I enjoy writing the most when I have something to learn from my fictional characters, when, like, oh. their growth is either, like, a growth I've experienced or a growth that I desire. And I think in this case, it's both of those things. I definitely feel like in Italy, making friends with like a queer Iranian poet who was just part of his queerness as his Iranianness, um, and like hanging out with kind of this like very mini sound family that I developed. That was like very much the beginning of like, oh wait, I don't need to actually keep this part of my life separate or hidden right. um, the way that I used to. And yet at the same time, I like kind of like a mirror and how he like preached out on the airplane because he could feel himself kind of crawling back mm-hmm. into the closet. You know, like Rome was like a magical and like like otherworldly experience. But then I came back and I sort of did find myself going, retreating into my old ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I, I was just like doubly intent on writing the book because I'd grown in some ways, but I knew that I still had growing to do. I knew it wasn't just like a one and done thing. Right, and like you so, wrote this book, so it's like you can't. It's like there's a point of no return. Right? There's no looking back. Exactly. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Like I literally wrote like a gay Hawaiian yeah. Muslim book. I can't go back. Yeah. You sort of no return from Phantom of the Opera because that is that is the book. <laughs> no, I love that. I love that. And so I guess I'm curious if there's if there's like a thing 
you would love to, like, tell readers, readers going into this book, just in general, like, you know, what is something you want to impart? It's like, you're like, I feel like I need to say this thing. Yeah, it's twofold. It's, you know, this idea that you don't have to hide, like, you don't have to hide the kind of, like, icky, messy parts of who you are. I was actually talking yeah. to another, Becky Albert Halley, the author of Finding Birth on the Shaping's Agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, she recently came out as bi in, like, a beautiful yes. essay on media. That essay was Oh, my. I was like, oh, man. I was like cheering, like, you know, by fit pumping up. The I, know. I, like, I mean, so especially because she, she wanted to be clear that she did not get to come out on her own terms. And that is and that is not okay and it is not fair. But I was. But I feel like we got. To, I feel like I got to come out to a certain extent. I mean, I, yeah. I was dating someone who so I had to come out to my parents. But like, I feel like that's almost a luxury nowadays to like come out to like to decide how you get to come out. You know? It is. It is. And I think stories like Becky are Becky's are like where she gave us her beautiful messy truth. It did not go out exactly the way she wanted, you know. But all of us have things that, like, don't pan out exactly, like, you know, like, it's this idea that, like, everyone has some kind of, like, a beautiful, messy truth, and that one person, like, Becky, kind of talking about the ways that it worked out and it didn't work out and kind of, like, how she came to that place makes it a little bit easier for everyone else to put those parts of themselves out in the world. So, like, the one thing I would say is, like, mm-hmm. you don't have to hide those messy, icky, seemingly incompatible parts, but you also don't have to be in a rush to shove them out. Well, I know? feel like people like, don't say that enough. That's right. Yeah. It's, and I'm so happy. I think about this all the time, just from being friends with you and Adam. Like, I think you and Adam are farther along in your coming up, in your intersections, and all that kind of, like, truth-telling than I was. And yet, you never pressured me to kind of, like, tell those stories. Because I was always, like, kind of recounting stories about, like, being in the city and, like, dates and things like that to you two. And there was never any pressure, like, okay, you need to put this in a book, or you need to go public about it. Like, it was always, like, an at-your-own-pace sort of, yeah. You come out, like, that's just, it's never going to be, this is your real story. That's why the story is so powerful, because yeah. this book is, like, you were ready, and, like... I was ready. ready. And it felt like the right story. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, that's the thing. Like, even, because a lot of people will come out, and they'll come into their queerness, and they'll have queer friends, and yet they're maybe, they maybe still won't be ready to put all of it out into the world. And it will right, take right. that... You know, it could take a trip to Italy. It could take, it could take, or it could take, or it could take a tweet. It could take a friend. It could take a relationship. It could take a pet. I mean, like, there, you, you never know what that like spark's gonna be. But yeah, it's just like, it all happens in stages, and like, you just can't anticipate when the next stage will be and when you'll mm-hmm. be. And even, and that's that's yeah. So it's it's. You know, you don't have to hide it, but also you don't have to feel that pressure to put it all out there right away. I love that. So just really quickly, because I just want to like the last question. Can you just give some book recs? I'm just like on the spot. I feel like it's always great to end on, like, what are books that you're, yeah, like anything, three books. All right, three books. So I just read Everything Sad is Untrue uh, oh. by Daniel Mayeri. It was gorgeously written. I mean, it's, it's a mm-hmm. book, not just about, like, so I'll give you the premise. It's about a 12-year-old Iranian refugee who moved to Oklahoma um, and is basically standing in front of his classroom and telling his life stories. So you have a similar format in terms of like oral storytelling, mm-hmm. but he does it in this Scheherazade way. And so the way that like Scheherazade is weaving stories together to kind of like stay alive and survive. Daniel, who's this refugee who gets made fun of a lot, is also kind of like telling stories to his class and survival mechanism. It's also just beautifully written. It's equal parts like everyday stories about like poop and his friends and his crushes. And then also like epic Persian myths and, like, tales of his family from generations back. So it, like, blends those two really, really well. 
And you reviewed that for the New York Times. I reviewed it for the Times, yeah. You know, I'm really glad that I left it because I just, I wrote a, a glowing review and I meant every word yeah. of it. Yeah. I mean, right now I'm reading, <laughs> I'm reading The Silent Patient, which is just a fantastic page yeah, turner. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm actually, it's funny, whenever I get a really good page turner, I actually try to like only do a couple chapters at a, at a time. Like I fight the urge to So that's another one that I recommend, and I'm, like, slowly making way through it, but I, you know, am super-duper invested. And then, oh, and here's another Iranian rack that's, like, on my nightstand right now, The Stationery Shop by Marjan Kamali. Um, Kamali. It's uh, a historical romance, and it's set in the 50s during, like, a political uprising in Iran, but it's about two kind of teenagers who fall in love, but one is, like, a revolutionary kind of, like, lameness. Oh, I need to read Oh, yeah. And the other one is this, and then, you know, the other one, the narrator, is this, like, quiet bookish girl. And, yeah, I just, I, I just love that trope, too, of, like, quiet bookish girl, like, falling for revolutionary who wants to change the world. Oh, and then, like... They change each other. I love it. They change each other, but then, like, the day of this big uprising, they, like, get separated, and then the book opens with, like, 60, 70 years later, when they're 80-something years old, being reunited... Oh my God. Halfway across the world. So it's, it's honestly, I would, kind of, I would describe it as like the Iranian notebook. I was like, um, no, I literally was like, all right, is this the notebook? Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's Iranian notebook with a cool historical angle. So yeah. highly oh, recommend that. I love that. I love that. That is such, that's so great. I mean, wow, just three great books. Um, What a great note to end on. Okay, Arvin, um, let us know anything else we need to know, where we can find you online, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, at Arvin Amati, and then the book is called How It All Blew Up. It comes out September 22nd. Okay. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Patrice. Thank you so much for listening to the Hotkey podcast. We would love it if you could rate and subscribe and spread the word to all of those YA fans out there. You can find Hotkey Books at Hotkey Books YA and at Hotkey Books Teen on Twitter and Instagram and at Hotkey Books on Facebook and YouTube. We would love to hear any suggestions or thoughts you have on the podcast. So if you have any questions or content you would like to hear featured, please do email marketing.childrens at bonniabooks.co.uk. Our audiobook this month is The Spellbinding Stepsister by Jennifer Donnelly, a stunning and shocking retelling of the Cinderella fairy tale from a Carnegie Medal novelist. Stepsister takes up where Cinderella's tale ends, a powerful feminist retelling which asks the question, what about the bullies? Can a mean girl change? Can she find her own happily ever after? Hotkey Books present Stepsister, written by Jennifer Donnelly and read by Helen Duff. To everyone who's ever felt they're not enough. This is a dark tale. A grim tale. It's a tale from another time. A time when wolves waited for girls in the forest. Beasts paced the halls of cursed castles. And witches lurked in gingerbread houses with sugar-kissed roofs. That time is long gone. But the wolves are still here, and twice as clever. The beasts remain, and death still hides in a dusting of white. It's grim for any girl who loses her way. Grimmer still for a girl who loses herself. Know that it's dangerous to stray from the path. But it's far more dangerous not to. 
Prologue Once upon always and never again, in an ancient city by the sea, three sisters worked by candlelight. The first was a maiden. Her hair, long and loose, was the colour of the morning sun. She wore a gown of white and a necklace of pearls. In her slender hands, she held a pair of golden scissors, which she used to cut lengths of the finest parchment. The second, a mother, ample and strong, wore a gown of crimson. Rubies circled her neck. Her red hair, as fiery as a summer sunset, was gathered into a braid. She held a silver compass. The third was a crone, crook-backed and shrewd. Her gown was black. Her only adornment was a ring of obsidian, incised with a skull. She wore her snow-white hair in a coil. Her gnarled, ink-stained fingers held a quill. The crone's eyes, like those of her sisters, were a forbidding grey, as cold and pitiless as the sea. At a sudden clap of thunder, she raised her gaze from the long wooden work table at which she sat to the open doors of her balcony. A storm howled down upon the city. Rain scoured the rooftops of its grand palazzos. Lightning split the night. From every church tower, bells tolled a warning. The water is rising, she said. The city will flood. We are high above the water. It cannot touch us. It cannot stop us, said the mother. Nothing can stop us, said the maiden. The crone's eyes narrowed. He can. The doors are locked, said the mother. He cannot get in. Perhaps he already has, said the crone. At this, the mother and the maiden looked up. Their wary eyes darted around the cavernous room, but they saw no intruder, only their cloaked and hooded servants going about their tasks. Relieved, they returned to their work, but the crone remained watchful. Map-making was the sister's trade, but no one ever came to buy their maps, for they could not be had at any price. Each was exquisitely drawn, using feathers from a black swan. Each was sumptuously coloured, with inks mixed from indigo, gold, ground pearl and other things, things far more difficult to procure. Each used time as its unit of measure, not distance, for each map charted the course of human life. Roses, rum and ruin, the crone muttered, sniffing the air. Can you not smell them? Smell him. It's only the wind, soothed the mother. It carries the scents of the city. Still muttering, the crone dipped her quill into an ink pot. Candle tapers flickered in silver candelabra as she drew the landscape of a life. A raven, coal black and bright-eyed, roosted on the mantel. 
a tall clock in an ebony case, stood against one wall. Its pendulum, a human skull, swung slowly back and forth, ticking away seconds, hours, years, lives. The room was shaped like a spider. The sister's workspace in the centre was the creature's body. Long rows of towering shells led off the centre like a spider's many legs. Glass doors that led out to the balcony were at one end of the room. A pair of carved wooden doors loomed at the other. The crone finished her map. She held a stick of red sealing wax in a candle flame, dripped it onto the bottom of the document, then pressed her ring into it. When the seal had hardened, she rolled the map, tied it with a black ribbon, and handed it to a servant. He disappeared down one of the rows to shelve the map, carrying a candle to light his way. That's when it happened. Another servant, his head down, walked between the crone and the open doors behind her. As he did, a gust of wind blew over him, filling the room with the rich scent of smoke and spices. The crone's nostrils flared. She whirled around. You there, she cried, lunging at him. Her claw-like hand caught hold of his hood. It fell from his head, revealing a young man with amber eyes, dark skin, and long black braids. Seize him, she hissed. A dozen servants rushed at the man, but as they closed in, another gust blew out the candles. By the time they had slammed the doors shut and relit them, all that remained of the man was his cloak, cast off and puddled on the floor. The crone paced back and forth, shouting at the servants. They poured down the dusky rows, their cloaks flying behind them, trying to flush the intruder out. A moment later, he burst out from behind one of the shelves, skidding to a stop a few feet from the crone. He darted to the wooden doors and frantically tried the handle, but it was locked. Swearing under his breath, he turned to the three sisters, flashed a quicksilver smile, and swept them a bow. He was dressed in a sky-blue frock coat, leather breeches, and tall boots. A gold ring dangled from one ear, a cutlass hung from his hip. His face was as beautiful as daybreak, his smile as bewitching as midnight. His eyes promised the world, and everything in it. But the sisters were unmoved by his beauty. One by one, they spoke. Luck, hissed the maiden. Risk, the mother spat. Hazard, snarled the crone. I prefer a chance, but has a nicer ring, the man said with a wink. It's been a long time since you paid us a visit, said the crone. I should drop by more often, said Chance. It's always a pleasure to visit the fates. You're so spontaneous, so wild and unpredictable. It's always a party, this place. A regular bacchanal. It's so much fun. A handful of servants spilled out from a row between the shelves, red-faced and winded.
Chance pulled his cutlass from its scabbard. The blade glinted in the candlelight. The servant stepped back. Whose map have you stolen this time? The crone asked. What empress or general has begged your favor? Still holding his cutlass in one hand, Chance drew a map from his coat with the other. He tugged the ribbon off with his teeth, then gave the parchment a shake. It unrolled and he held it up. As the three women stared at it, their expressions changed from anger to confusion. I see a house, the Maison de Lure, in the village of Saint-Michel, the crone said. It's the home of, said the matron. A girl, Isabelle de la Palme, the crone finished. Who? asked the maiden. All this trouble for a mere girl, asked the crone, regarding Chance closely. She's nothing, a nobody. She possesses neither beauty nor wit. She's selfish, mean. Why her? Because I can't resist a challenge, Chance replied. He re-rolled the map with one hand, steadying it against his chest then tucked it back inside his coat. And what girl wouldn't choose would I offer? He gestured at himself, as if even he couldn't believe how irresistible he was. I'll give her the chance to change the path she is on, the chance to make her own path. Fool, said the crone. You understand nothing of mortals. We fates map out their lives because they wish it. Mortals do not like uncertainty. They do not like change. Change is frightening. Change is painful. Change is a kiss in the dark, a rose in the snow, a wild road on a windy night. Chance counted. Monsters live in the dark. Roses die in the snow. Girls get lost on wild roads. The crone shot back. But Chance would not be discouraged. He sheathed his cutlass and held out his hand. As if by magic, a gold coin appeared in his fingers. I'll make you a bet, he said. You push me too far, the crone growled, fury gathering like a storm in her eyes. Chance flipped the coin at the crone. She snatched it from the air and slammed it down on the table. The storm broke. Do you think a coin can pay for what you've set loose? She raged. A warlord rampages across France. Death reaps a harvest of bones. A kingdom totters. All because of you. Chance's smile slipped. For a few seconds, his fiery bravado dimmed. I'll fix it. I swear it. With that girl's map. She was brave once. She was good. Your head is even emptier than your promises, the crone said. Open the map again. Read it this time. See what becomes of her. Chance did so. 
His eyes followed the girl's path across the parchment. The breath went out of him as he saw its end. The blotches and hatches, the violent lines. His eyes sought the crones. This ending, it's not, it, it can't be. Do you still think you can fix this? The crone mocked. Chance took a step towards her, his chin raised. I offer you high stakes. If I lose this wager, I will never come back to the palazzo again. And if I lose? You allow me to keep this map. Allow the girl to direct her own steps forevermore. I do not like those stakes, the crone said. She waved her hand, and her servants, who had been slowly edging closer to chance, charged at him. Some were bearing cutlasses of their own. Chance was trapped. Or so it seemed. There's no hope of escape. Give me back the map, said the crone, holding out her hand. There's always hope, Chance said, tucking the map back into his coat. He took a few running steps, launched himself into a somersault, and flew over the heads of the servants. He landed on the work table with the grace of a panther and ran down its length. When he reached the end, he jumped to the floor, then sped to the balcony. You are caught now, rogue, the crone shouted after him. We are three stories high. What can you do? Leap across the canal? Even you are not that lucky. Chance wrenched open the balcony's doors and leapt up onto its railing. The rain had stopped, but the marble was still wet and slippery. His body pitched back and forth, his arms windmilled. Just as it looked as if he would surely fall, he managed to steady himself balancing gingerly on his toes. The map! Now! the crone demanded. She had walked out onto the balcony and was only a few feet away from him. Her sisters joined her. Chance glanced back at the fates. Then he somersaulted into the air. The crone gasped. She rushed to the railing, her sisters right behind her expecting to see him drowning in the swirling waters below. But he was not. He was lying on his back, cradled in the canopy of a gondola. The boat was rocking violently from side to side, but Chance was fine. Row, my fine fellow, he called to the gondolier. The man obliged. The boat moved off. Chance sat up, eyeing the fates with a diamond-bright intensity. You must accept my stakes now. You have no choice, he shouted. The gondola grew smaller and smaller as it made its way down the canal. A moment later, it rounded a bend and disappeared. This is a bad state of affairs, the crone said darkly. We cannot have mortals making their own choices. When they do, disaster follows. The maiden and the mother stepped back into the room. The crone trailed them. Pack a trunk, she barked at a servant. I'll need quills and inks. 
Her hand hovered over the bottles upon the table. She selected a deep ebony. Fear. Yes. Jealousy will be useful too, she said, reaching for a poisonous green. Where are you going? The maiden asked. To the village of San Michel, the crone replied. You will stop chance from taking hold of the girl, asked the mother. The crone smiled grimly. No, I cannot. But I will do what we fates have always done. I will stop the girl from taking hold of a chance.